this is graduation weekend, which means that many of you have been or will be subjected to some pretty forgettable, if not outright bad, graduation slash commencement speeches this weekend. I've graduated four times, and the only graduation speech I remember was when I graduated from high school. A football coach named Kent Lashley uh, talked about something I've never forgotten, a loser's limp, about holding your head high in the face of defeat. I remember my high school when uh, I graduated college, don't remember any of it. I graduated with a master's, don't remember the speech. Graduated with my doctorate, don't remember the speech. They're all very forgettable. Now, the most really celebrated commencement speech of all time was actually given by Winston Churchill at his alma mater at the conclusion of Germany's Blitz against London. Now, because the internet does more to perpetuate bad information than to supply us with good information, that speech has been mythologized as the shortest speech in history. It wasn't. Uh, it was about 20 minutes long, and it's been distorted. Uh, the distortion says that the content, the entire content of Churchill's commencement speech was him just repeating over and over again, never give up. Uh, words he actually never said in his speech. But here is part of what he did say that I want to read to you this morning. Imagine Churchill. I won't imitate him. All right, just imagine his voice. He said, but for everyone, surely what we've gone through in this period, remember, it's just after the London Blitz. After what we've gone through in this period, I'm addressing myself to the school. Surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. That's the money paragraph. So he never actually said never give up, but clearly that's the sentiment. That's what he meant. In things great or small, large or petty, except when personal honor and good sense dictates that you do so, never give up. Which leads me to address the elephant that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, has let loose in the room in Romans chapter 9. In the difficult to hear, hard to grasp words of Romans 9... Paul has said that salvation is, though a matter of personal responsibility, ultimately a function of God's sovereign choice, something that he and the Bible calls election. He says all of this while addressing a group of Jews who had come to Christ, who had friends and family members whose hearts were hardened against the gospel. So I want you to imagine what they would have thought while listening to Paul. These who had unbelieving family and friends, what would they have been thinking hearing these words about God essentially ordaining the rejection of the Jewish people? Actually, some of you don't have to imagine very hard because some of you today in this room have unbelieving family and friends who seem so far from the gospel that you can't imagine them ever responding to it in a favorable way, leading you to conclude that they either aren't the elect and wondering what use it is to pray for them or share with them or just thinking there's really nothing that you can do at all. And Paul's counsel to us in this passage is very, very simple. 
Here it is. Never give in. Never, 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 never. Yes, the words of Romans 9 have been hard to hear at times. But the words of Romans 10 call us to hope because they call us to action, to never give up. Paul actually began with that notion in, in Romans 10.1 when he confessed, and these are the only words that I could come up to describe the confession, his desperate passion for his fellow Jews to come to Christ. But he hits his stride when he calls his readers, when he calls us today, to that same kind of desperate passion for the lostness around us. Now, our passage today actually begins in verse 5, but I want to go back to the verse that I concluded with last week. Look at verse 4 of Romans 10. He says, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's simply saying here, once again, because he said it over and over in Romans and in other of his writings, that all that we find in the Old Testament runs to Jesus that every word of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so the path to righteousness, the path to being made right to God, is to follow where the Old Testament leads us, and that is to Jesus, and place our faith in Him. And then he reminds us of why we must do this with what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. But Moses writes that the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, positively, obviously saying if you obey the law, you're able to achieve right standing with God. But what he said over and over again, and actually what he's alluding to here, is the converse of that. As a result of being unable to obey the Scriptures perfectly, they can't bring us life. They can't make us right with God because while the Scriptures are perfect... You and I are not perfect, far from it. Now, obviously, that's not a hopeful verse. But now Paul will use something else that Moses said about the, avail the availability of the Word of God to follow in the first place in order to highlight the availability of Jesus for salvation. Look at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. When explaining to the Jewish people what God demanded of the people of Israel in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy... Moses said it wasn't like God had made it difficult for them to do what is required. And this would have been good information to have at the time because if you go to that section of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that, that Moses, that God's instruction has had half the people of Israel on the, the, the end of one valley and on the other side, the other half of the people of Israel. And he is reading out, he is proclaiming what God has instructed and announcing the blessings for following what God does and the curses for not doing what God does. 
And the people, understanding their own sinfulness, would have been very weighted down, saying, what if we mess up? What if we don't do what God would have us to do? And Moses says to them in response, it's not like God has made it difficult for you to know what is required of you. You don't have to go to heaven to try to find what God commands. You don't have to go to the depths of the earth to try to find what God commands. You have the Word of God. You have the Old Testament being constructed at that time, you have the Ten Commandments to know what God requires of you. You don't have to travel to find what God wants. God's Word is with you. And what Paul does here is kind of riff on this and say that in the same way, in the same way, finding salvation in Jesus isn't hard. We don't have to go up to heaven to find Him. We don't have to go to the depths of the earth to find him, God has given him to us, and because of that, the following is true. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for the Scriptures says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. All that is required for you and I to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, is to confess and believe. It really is that simple. But it is not as meaningless as what I'm afraid many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus have made those words out to be. By, by that, I mean that confess doesn't simply mean say some stuff, and believe doesn't simply mean know some stuff. Instead, what God is saying here is that salvation comes as the result of a public acknowledgement of a profound inner conviction. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to declare that you have brought all of your life under the authority of Christ and that you are willing to carry out your life, whatever it is, under his authority and under his command. And to believe in your heart that Christ lives is to say that you are deeply convinced that a resurrected Christ has the right to demand from us lordship. And Paul is saying that these two things, confession and belief, declaration and conviction, work together to bring a person to saving faith, to being right with God. Now remember, the concern driving Paul here is the deep desire to address the questions of those who have seen their family and friends reject the gospel and who wonder if it's possible for those who they've seen, perhaps violently so, reject the gospel, if it's possible for them to be saved. So what Paul has said here essentially is just remember the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. This is not calculus. This is not, uh, you know, differential equations. This is not hard. You have to declare publicly a profound inner conviction that you are bringing your life under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Good so far. But now he goes to the heart of the matter. Remember, they're wondering, well, it is simple. It is simple, but 
But will my family and friends do it? Again, look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There it is. Don't ever forget that it's possible for anyone with a pulse, for Jew, for Gentile, to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah by the Jews had been part of God's plan to take Jewish followers of Jesus from an exclusive focus on the Jewish people with the gospel when seeing their rejection now say, well, let's take it to others and see if they respond. It had been a part of his plan to get the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. But it did not mean that Jesus was keeping all Jews from knowing him. Paul was an example of a Jew who knew Jesus. Many of the people to whom he was writing, examples of Jews who knew Jesus. Others, the apostles, Jews who knew Jesus. So it didn't mean, Romans 9 didn't mean that a Jew couldn't come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying here, all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And by implication, he is saying, since none of us know who will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to continue to have the hope, to live in the hope that the gospel of Jesus will find its way into the heart of those who have previously rejected that. And that ought to make our hearts sore, but hang on. Paul needs to get us to the rest of the story here. So he shifts gears beginning in verse 14, and he says, How then, understanding that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I'm not taking my shoes off. I'm not letting you check me out. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's just saying, how is anybody supposed to respond to the gospel, how's anyone supposed to call on the name of the Lord to save them if no one is telling them they need to call on the name of the Lord to save them? For the gospel to flourish, for the elect of Romans 9 to be found among the multitudes, the gospel has to be proclaimed. The words have to be shared. Why? He tells us because faith comes by hearing And hearing's activated by the proclamation of the gospel. We've got to share the message, the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is Jesus himself. I've heard, and you've heard the saying, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Total nonsense. 
It's theological hogwash. It doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of verse 17, though it might work well as a meme on social media. I get what it means to communicate. It means to communicate that our life must match our message. And to that I say amen. Of course our life must match our message and We've got a generation of people walking away from the church because they've rightly assessed many of us are just full of words and not a real relationship with Jesus. But without the message of the gospel, we're moralist. That's it. It's the message of the gospel that makes a life, a Christian life, not the morals of the gospel. You can have the morals of the gospel without Jesus, but you cannot have salvation in God without Jesus Christ. So the point that Paul is making here is that since the gospel can save anyone who surrenders to Jesus, and since we don't know who surrenders to Jesus, we should share it with everyone. Yes, there's a mystery as to who will receive it and who won't. But that mystery is not ours to ponder. Our mission is to get the message out anywhere and everywhere and not let someone's rejection of the gospel get in our way of sharing it. Oh, they said no. Well, so what? That doesn't give you an excuse to no longer be obedient to the one-sentence job description that all of us have been given, which is to go to the world and make disciples. We should never let it get in the way of our sharing it, which is the last point that he makes in this section of Romans 10. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Have the Jews not heard the message of the gospel? Indeed they have, he says. For, and he quotes the Old Testament, their voice, the voice of God's good news has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, he answers that question. He says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. That actually is an allusion back to what he was teaching in Romans chapter 9 about Israel's rejection of the gospel. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, speaking for God... God saying these words, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So again, he's alluding back to Romans 9 and, and Israel's ultimate rejection of the gospel. But of Israel, he says, and this is where he's landing, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's not Isaiah speaking. That's the word of God to the people of Israel. All day long I've held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. So if you just kind of back up through those verses I just read, you'll see God acknowledging that the people have rejected him. But then a statement is made in verse 21 that God continues to make himself known to these people. Paul here is simply saying that Israel's rejection is not a new situation. They've heard the voice of God. They've ignored it time and time again. You could do this and do that in a page of the Old Testament. You'll likely land on a page where Israel is jacking it up. And yet, in spite of this, 
God has continued to call out to Israel. And by implications in that last verse, he continues to call out to Israel with the ministry of the church through the gospel. So despite Israel's rejection of Christ, in spite of that rejection being bound in the mysterious mix of God's will and personal responsibility, the gospel continues to be clear and available to them through the church. So Paul is calling on his readers to continue boldly sharing Jesus with their Jewish family and friends. And in a similar vein, despite your family member or friend's rejection of Christ, In spite of that rejection being bound in the mysterious mix of God's will and personal responsibility, the gospel continues to be clear and available to them through you. So Paul is calling on us all to continue to boldly share Jesus with our family and friends, which leads us to two conclusions, and I'm about to flunk preaching class because you're going to fill out all of your blanks in 15 seconds. Number one, never give up on the gospel. And number two, never give up sharing the gospel. There is no other way people can be right with God except the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so never give up on its power to save anyone who avails themselves of it. And because it is key And because it is central, never give up sharing the gospel. Here's the worst thing that can happen with our journey through this section of Romans, which in the flesh, if I could have said at the end of Romans 8, and then Paul says a bunch of stuff, let's go to chapter 12, I would have. The worst thing that can happen with the issues that are raised here concerning God's sovereign will and mankind's personal responsibility is for it to become nothing more than a theological debate. I believe that Romans 9 is teaching that salvation is primarily a function of God's choice, His election. You may believe that Romans 9 is teaching that salvation is primarily a function of of personal responsibility. Or some of you may believe that it's equal part of both. But here's what's not up for debate. Here's what none of us need to question as a result of these difficult chapters. It's the truth that the gospel alone has the power to save and that we should never for a second give up on its power to save those we love. And as such, we should never give up sharing it with those we love, even in the face of their seemingly final rejection of it. Never give up on the gospel. Never give up sharing the gospel. And let me illustrate in closing a reason why. Hugh Morgan. I had the privilege of being Hugh's last pastor before he passed away at the church. I pastored years ago prior to coming to Blue Valley in Oklahoma. Hugh Morgan is one of the greatest church members I've ever served, and he's one of the greatest Christians 
that I have ever known. But as a young husband and father, Hugh had been anything but a model church member because Hugh was openly hostile to the message of Jesus. He was a good man. He's good to his wife. He's good to his kids. But he had hardened his heart against Jesus for years. Every week, his wife and his kids would go to church while Hugh stayed home. When pastors would stop by to visit, he'd make himself very scarce. And though he was a kind man, he'd be just short of rude when a pastor or a friend tried to engage him in a conversation about Jesus. In short, there wasn't a less likely candidate in all of Pryor Creek, Oklahoma, to come to Jesus than Hugh Morgan. Now, you younger folks are going to be shocked by what I'm about to say, but there was a time in churches like ours when the names of people who needed to follow Jesus was written on a board at the front of the church by the church members who were praying for them. And the pastor would then read the names of the lost people that were being prayed for and lead the church in a prayer of their salvation. We do that today. Every lawyer in Johnson County will pull out a business card. But uh, that's the way it used to be. And, and Hugh's wife, Dee, must have felt pretty hopeless when she wrote Hugh's name up on that board. She must have wondered in her sweet little heart what good it could possibly do to hear her husband prayed for week in and week out. But she kept his name on that board, and the church kept its prayers for his salvation fresh because they never gave up on the power of the gospel to save, to save even someone who had seemingly rejected it once and for all, someone like Hugh Morgan. And because of that, his wife and his family and his community kept sharing the gospel of Jesus. They never gave up on the gospel. And slowly over time, the least likely man in Pryor Creek, Oklahoma, to respond to the gospel became one of the greatest Christians I have ever known. Now, folks, I'm happy to have conversations with folks about the impenetrable mystery at the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If you want to have a conversation about that, email me. We'll sit down and chat. If you want to fight with me over it, eh. But if you want to have a conversation, sit down with me. We'll chat. You can tell me all the reasons you think I'm wrong and outline what you believe, and I can just sit there and take it. <laughs> but if at the end of the day, our conversation together doesn't move us to share the gospel with those who have yet to respond, then all we have done is engage in useless theological navel-gazing and called it mature Christianity. That's hogwash. That's bunk. The doctrines are important. I got paper all over the wall in my office that says the doctrines are important. But my grandma never graduated from high school 
knew what was necessary to change the world. And his name was Jesus. And so there's mystery, but there is bedrock certainty that the gospel's the only hope. And there's explicit instruction in the Word of God to share that gospel with everyone with whom we lock eyes. Let's pray together.